here we are in the third and final installment in our series. I feel a little bit like HBO, or I guess I hope I'm like HBO since they do really great miniseries as opposed to being, for instance, Lifetime, whose miniseries seem to feature an unusual number of call girls turned good scenarios. This is the first time I've done a platform series here at Wes, and I would love your feedback. Did you like the chance to follow a theme through a number of weeks? Did you wish they were broken up by different platforms in between? Do you have an idea for another series? Send me an email, stop me during coffee hour, let me know what you thought. For those of you who missed the last two parts of the series, a quick recap. We have been looking at the three spiritual pains identified by Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, who lived and wrote in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Adler thought these spiritual pains were universally experienced by humans and were the basis of our impulse toward religious community and toward what he called in his book of the same name, the reconstruction of the spiritual ideal. The first two pains, which we discussed on February 27th and March 6th, were our sense of our own insignificance in the cosmos and our experience of the great suffering of others. If you're interested, you can check out those platforms online so you get a flavor of the whole series. And here we are now at the third and final of Adler's spiritual pains. I have been pretty excited to address this one ever since early February when a West member approached me and said that he really hoped that somewhere in the series I would address one of his own struggles, which was how to handle the disparity between how he wanted to live and behave and how he really did. And, ta-da, that's exactly what the third spiritual pain is. That Adler guy, he must have been onto something. <clears throat> have you ever made a really embarrassing mistake? And then had to acknowledge it publicly, like on a Sunday morning in front of a congregation that you serve. <laughs> Not anything terrible. Just something that kind of makes it seem like you aren't quite sure what you're doing. Let me tell you a story. I first read Adler's Spiritual Pains a couple of years ago when I was preparing for my ethical culture leadership certification. I wrote a, a paper on Adler as well as a few platforms, and I detailed the spiritual pains in that, in that paper. When I planned for this platform series, I went back and skimmed the section in Adler's writing so that I could write up the synopses for the program and the newsletter, and so that I could plan the music with melody to work with each theme throughout the series. As I mentioned, I was especially excited about this last pain in the series because I felt it resonated with so many people that I spoke with. I even have a little pin given to me by another West member that neatly summarizes the problem. I'm ethically challenged. Well, apparently I'm also memory challenged. When I sat down to actually write this platform, I, of course, returned again to Adler's work so that I could quote him on the whole divided conscious, conscience concept, the conscience that wants to behave in one way and finds that it cannot do so at least all of the time. I actually wrote the word sigh into my platform here. <sighs> Wouldn't you believe it? Adler didn't mean a divided conscience of that kind that I was thinking of at all. I'm not sure if I just wanted it to be the kind that I meant and the kind that this West member meant, the kind I really think is a struggle for many of us, or if I misinterpreted it the first time I wrote about it, although I did pass that paper. 
or if the entire universe is simply acting against me, it's probably the last one. Here is what Adler actually meant. For him, the divided conscience was the struggle that we face when the way we behave in our personal relationships, say with our family or our friends, is inconsistent with how we behave in more public relationships, in business settings or within the larger order of society. Adler felt that the private morality that we practiced was insufficient to address our behavior within groups and that we therefore needed to construct a new morality that would function within group settings and throughout the entirety of national life. It's a little different. <laughs> you can imagine I was flummoxed as to how to proceed. On the one hand, I had promised you Adler's three spiritual pains. On the other hand, I had also promised a platform on how we fail to live up to our expectations of ourselves. And it was that platform that I had prepped for, chosen poetry for, and chosen music around. And to be frank, it was that platform I wanted to give. So here's what we're doing, folks. I'm making an executive decision that Adler really would have loved my version of the divided conscience. If only he had known. I'm going to share with you today my thoughts on that one, and I promise to return to Adler's actual understanding of the divided conscience on March 27th, when I'm addressing the national economic system and the concept of economic justice and worth. It's going to fit in beautifully there. If you don't tell Adler what happened, I won't either. I find it really reassuring at this moment that I don't have a personal theology of people returning from death to check on things. And of course, I am aware of the irony that my really embarrassing mistake occurred as I prepared for a platform on, essentially, acknowledging and accepting our imperfections. I just wanted to illustrate it for you, you know? Because at its heart, I think that's what we mean when we talk about our moral failures, when we admit that we are ethically challenged, that our lives are not always what we wish they were. Some of us crave perfection in our writing or in our dress or in any of another million aspects of our lives, but almost all of us struggle with the problem of our moral imperfection. One of the positive spins on this, I think, is that to experience a sense of moral imperfection must mean that we have aspirations to morality in the first place. Very few people, I think, are really morally corrupt, that is, carrying with them no sense of right or wrong or a sense of it, but no interest in pursuing it. Almost all of us have some idea of how we want to behave in the world, and my guess is that this particular congregation leans a little more heavily toward strong feelings about how to behave, that we are a group of people that think more than average about our hopes for our own moral behavior. Ethical is, after all, our middle name. And I think it's not an entirely glib response to just celebrate that, to acknowledge that the experience of imperfection means that we have a desire for perfection, that we take our own ethical standards seriously. Approaching ethics with care shows that we believe in our power as ethical agents and that we exercise that power carefully. There's also a gift in our feelings of imperfection because they can alert us to the times when we aren't meeting our own standards. As my father said frequently when I was growing up, guilt's good for you. He meant, he's, if you know my father, he really meant that nicely. He meant, I think, that guilt can be an indicator that we've done something wrong. 
as a child when our ethical standards are still evolving and we are piecing together what is right and what is wrong, guilt can be particularly helpful. Except, of course, when it's not. It's easy for us to get stuck in guilt, especially when we have had experiences in childhood, perhaps in other religious traditions or just in our own families, where guilt was really used as a weapon, used to shame us or to force behavior that perhaps we didn't feel was consistent with our own internal standards. And even if we haven't had any of these experiences, guilt can still hold us back, keeping us focused on all the ways that we are not living up to our hopes for ourselves, rather than pushing us forward to do better the next time. Sometimes I really wish this religious tradition had a good practice of penance. It gets such a bad rap, penance. You know, we imagine self-flagellation, people beating themselves up over minor infractions, pilgrims crawling on their knees while declaring that they're sinners. But done right, penance can be freeing. It can provide both an acknowledgement of our error and a way of moving forward. It's not exactly a punishment, but it is a consequence. And consequences are helpful to us as we learn how to act, a learning that takes a lifetime. It also provides, I think, emotional release. It gives us something to do with our disappointment in ourselves. And once it's done, we're given the chance to move on, to feel as though our guilt can be over, our infraction completed, so that we can concentrate on the next possibility to do right in life. Many religious traditions actually offer some beautiful opportunities for what I might call positive penance, Opportunities that can, of course, be used poorly or in a way that twists them into something damaging. But at the heart of the practices are the idea that when we do wrong, we not only want to apologize, but to atone in some way, to be offered an opportunity to make it up to the world. Our meditation this morning was adapted from one such practice, the Kol Nidre chant, which begins the evening service on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which comes in the fall each year. The kol nidre is a way of wiping the slate clean, renouncing earlier vows to God and asking forgiveness instead so that the petitioner is ready to make new vows on the coming day. In the adaption that we used, the emphasis is on asking for forgiveness, on acknowledging the many ways that we fail, as well as our hope to, as the meditation reads and our chorus sang, begin again in love. We are now in the midst of one of the Christian traditions of penance and the asking of forgiveness, Lent. Lent is typically the 40 days before Easter, beginning on Ash Wednesday. When I was growing up, my friends who celebrated Lent talked mostly about giving up chocolate, a practice that never seemed to last much past the first day or so. And of course, adults often give up chocolate for Lent or meat, the idea behind that giving up, though, is not simply to deny oneself, but to raise one's awareness of the importance of forgiveness and the reality that we cannot all have everything all the time. Prayer, fasting, and repentance prepare the believer for Easter and the celebration of new life that it brings. These days, more and more Christians are choosing to observe Lent not with self-denial, but with practices of giving to charity or volunteering. These are sometimes called justice lents, 
and for me, they resonate more strongly than that practice of self-denial. I like the idea of penance that asks not for our withdrawal from the world, but for our more active engagement with the world. My ethical missteps are usually about forgetting my relationship to all things, forgetting the way that my actions affect others. The idea of performing penance that pulls me into more active engagement sounds right. This actually makes me think of another practice that I like, what I can only call corporate penance. I'm not sure if corporations are messing up more these days or if we are just catching them at it more quickly. Surely the corporate political machine is not helping the situation. But at any rate, every so often a corporation does something so universally disliked that it has to apologize and do penance. I would like to think that the experience might help some in the corporation's upper echelon grow in their own sense of ethics, but frankly, I'm okay settling for penances that just do the rest of us some good. Whether they are fines imposed by the government or donations made for PR purposes, ideally, they actually do something good for someone as a penance for doing something bad. DC has a green roof subsidy program, which I believe came out of WASA's need to invest $3 billion in environmental concerns because they were out of compliance with the Clean Water Act. Would I have preferred that they were in compliance? Of course. But since they weren't, I'm glad some buildings got green roofs. And the truth is, we are like WASA. Sometimes we are just not in compliance with our internal version of the Clean Water Act. I think the concept of penance can be a helpful one for us as we struggle with how to move forward. Sometimes I'd like to prescribe penance, although don't worry, I know better than to actually prescribe or proscribe anything to you. But I see people and I feel myself sometimes caught up in our ethical missteps. I wish I could say, seek forgiveness, volunteer for three hours at Luther Place Night Shelter, and call me in the morning. And of course, we can learn from our mistakes. Many of you have heard Mary Herman or me use a phrase of Adler's that ethical societies were meant to be living laboratories. Adler meant this in particular in relationship to ethical behavior, that ethical societies should be a place where we tried and failed frequently. So even though ethical is our middle name, we're not expected to do it better than anyone else. We're just expected to not give up. That in itself is a great learning. I mentioned the little button that I'm wearing, which reads, I'm ethically challenged. It has a double meaning, I think, both that I'm not always the ethical agent that I wish I were, and that I'm challenged, constantly pushing myself to do better in my ethical choices. I'm not sure you can have one without the other, that you can have growth and learning without mistakes. This pin was actually apparently part of a marketing campaign for a book, which was also given to me by that West member. It's called Ethics in the First Person by University of South Florida Professor Dini Elliott, and it's about how to teach ethics across disciplines and how to practice ethics in our own lives. Dr. Elliott talks in the book about what she calls the importance of recognizing moral mistakes. The primary reason for ethics education, she writes, is for those engaged in the study to be motivated to become increasingly better decision makers about ethical issues. Therefore, it is vital to recognize moral mistakes when they happen.
end quote. She outlines a three-part response to a moral mistake, which begins with recognition. She asks, could I have made different decisions? Then moves to recognition of one's own power to change a situation, i.e. To, to see oneself as an ethical agent, not a victim of circumstance. And finally asks for a way forward. As she writes, how can I formulate a plan of action to make a difference the next time this issue comes up? The onus, I think, rests on us to do well by our mistakes, to transform them into opportunities for reflection and growth. It gives our mistakes a kind of dignity, and I hope that it keeps us from getting stuck in the guilt, too. Some acknowledgement, a little penance, a plan to do better next time. That really may be a prescription for a healthy moral life. And sometimes, I think we all need to go a little easier on ourselves. I suppose, actually, some people need to go a little harder on themselves, but mostly what I see are people who hold high standards for themselves and who inevitably fail to meet them all of the time. Whether it's semi-vegetarians who wish they could go all the way to vegan, or parents who find that they don't always respond to their child with absolute patience. That's actually me. We are a people who disappoint ourselves. In February, we talked about broken covenants with other people, about how we seek and grant forgiveness to another. But sometimes the harder piece is how we grant forgiveness to ourselves. I think part of what we need to do is simply to know that our disappointment is part of our humanness, that our imperfection and our frailty are what ensure us a seat at the table of humanity. Ideally, they also keep us reasonably modest. I much prefer people who make ethical mistakes and try to learn from them to people who think they never made a mistake in the first place. So behind all of the mistakes and forgiveness and penance, I think, is the need to let things go just a little bit, to recognize that we will make mistakes, that we won't always be patient with our children that we might not manage to eat vegan all the time, that occasionally we will completely misremember a text and have to tell our entire congregation about it. What we need to remember is that the congregation will still like us, that the world will forgive us, that we remain worthy. Perhaps the final gift of mistakes is that it makes us more real, more accessible. There's a TED Talk one of those great 20-minute videos about a particular subject that two people have recommended to me in the last month, which probably means that the universe, or at least those two people, I guess, is trying to tell me something. The talk is given by Breen Brown. Breenie Brown, does anyone know? Breen Brown, okay, Breen Brown, there you go. And it's about a lot of things, because Brown is a storyteller and a researcher of stories. But mostly, it's about shame and vulnerability and authenticity. What Brown says is that in her research about wholeness and people who were able to identify in themselves a sense of worthiness, that those people were the very ones who most admitted their own vulnerabilities. They were the ones who didn't think they were perfect and didn't feel ashamed about acknowledging their imperfections. Because of the vulnerability they were willing to show the world, they were able to connect more deeply with people. They were able to grow and, paradoxically, 
they were able to hold a sense of their worthiness and their wholeness, despite or perhaps because of their imperfections. So I don't mind admitting it. I am ethically challenged. I do not always do things just right. And sometimes I do things pretty wrong. And I am ethically challenged. I try all the time to do things better. All we can do is try. I'm so glad I have all of you to try along with me.